This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Welcome back, everyone, to World to Win. We have an exciting episode this week where we're going to be talking to members of the International Socialist Alternative from Ireland and also from Austria, talking about the climate movement. Right now, even though young people may not be going to schools, we're still seeing them taking actions, striking, and we have people here to talk with us about that today. I'm so excited for this week's episode. But of course, first, I want to say hi to you, Yara. How's it going? How was your week? Hey, I'm good. It's really uh, nice to be here again, and I'm really excited about this episode. It's always so interesting to hear about the climate. I think it's obviously one of the biggest issues that we have nowadays, and I think it's also one of the biggest issues that have radicalized people. But before we go into that, I want to ask the audience, first of all, like, share this video. It's going to be really, really interesting. But also, I want to know what did you do on Friday? What what happened around you? And was it just a virtual protest? Were you just using the hashtags or did you have a physical protest to go to? So tell us all about that in the comments. Now, before we talk about the actual, you know, youth movements, I think it's really important that we discuss the climate in general and what it is that we're actually fighting for. So I think we all know that this has mobilized so many people and even though I think in the last few decades it might have been just this gloomy prediction, now it's become more and more concrete for people and especially for working class people and for young people. And each year brings more intense wildfires. It brings hurricanes, droughts, famines, floods, and recently also pandemics as well. And we, we're seeing kind of like a small drop in carbon emissions because of COVID lockdowns and restrictions, that was at the first of uh, the, the first uh, stages of the pandemic. We saw these illusions dissipate very, very quickly, um, and nature wasn't healing like some uh, uh, some newspapers were claiming. Uh, and we've seen that 2020 actually became the hottest year on record. So it's really, really frightening uh, that it's just going up and up and up despite all of these restrictions. And poor and working class people are hit the hardest by these crises, like by any other crisis. And all signs post, but just point to these disasters getting worse and worse and worse, not better. And about 24 million people have been displaced by ecological disasters annually in recent years, that is an incredible amount. And as many as 1.2 billion could be climate refugees by 2050. So I think it's really crucial that we talk about what what is happening with the climate and what are the actual scientific ways that we can oppose it. So we're here with Philip from our, the ISA in Austria. Hi, Philip. Hi, Jora. Uh, thank you for inviting me to the show. Really glad to be here. Thank you for being here. And I, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about the climate crisis and also what socialists see as the way forward for that. And I think a lot of times in discussions about the climate crisis, we have terms like tipping point, terms about how um, there's kind of like a point that we can't come back from. So can you explain some of the science behind the climate crisis and why is it so urgent that we talk about this now? Yes, 
uh, as you said, like the term tipping point is one of the um, repeatedly occurring um, terms that come up in the discussion. Um, I'm trying to answer this like as concise, but also as complete as possible. So the term tipping point generally refers to thresholds in a system. And it means that a small step across such a threshold can cause large and dramatic changes. So with regard to the climate crisis, tipping points describe crucial elements of the climate system, which can, once they are passed, create such strong self-reinforcing feedback dynamics that they cannot be stopped anymore, even if we then were to drastically reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So we have a couple of examples to like uh, kind of give, give some concrete um, touch to this. We have the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheet, for example. Um, they are melting, and this re reinforces the, the climate heating dynamic around it. So there are several factors. Ice reflects sunlight, that's quite obvious. And if less surface area is covered by ice, more energy from the sun is absorbed, causing increasing temperature rise. Then we have thawing ice in the, the um, ice sheets. And once the ice thaws, um, gets warmer, there are sometimes algae blooming, which have been observed already in the Greenland ice sheet, which then darkens the ice and increases sunlight absorption, again causing more, uh, causing more thawing and uh, melting. We have areas losing five times the um, ice faster than in the 1990s in the West Antarctic ice sheet. That's an incredible amount. And these things are happening all over the, the planet. So we have these... Um, Two things, North and South Pole, the ice sheets loss. Um, we have glaciers, again the same principle basically. Glaciers melt down, less reflection and increased um, absorption of sunlight. We have warmer oceans, it's another tipping point or a tipping dynamic. Um, currently the oceans absorb about 35 to 42 percent of all CO2 emitted and around 90 percent of the extra energy, extra heat that um, would otherwise heat our planet um, if it wasn't absorbed by the oceans. However, by the oceans warming, they are less able to absorb CO2. So that means that more emissions then accumulate further in the atmosphere, once again contributing to more climate heating. Besides the heating, warmer oceans also tend to expand um, so this causes stronger sea level rise. And then now um, two, last, two last points. We have the thawing permafrost, which is incredibly important in Siberia, Alaska and North Canada. Um, under, the, under the soil, there are large amounts of methane stored um, that were created over millions of years. And methane is a greenhouse gas that is way more potent than CO2 and depending on the time scale one looks at it its climate warming potential is between 25 to 84 times higher than that of CO2. Um, once, the, once the soil um, heats up and thaws it cannot serve as a cap kind of protecting this methane from um, being emitted into the atmosphere and this is what's happening right now. Uh, we have in, in Siberia, there have been craters all over like the tundra. Seven, 17 of such huge craters have been uh, detected so far. And these craters are large holes in the earth 
being created by accumulating methane underneath that then at some point explodes and gets released into the atmosphere. Um, not only is the methane extremely dangerous for the climate heating, but also these, um, these craters that, create, that are created through that are um, a potential danger for indigenous communities living there and for gas infrastructure that could then be damaged and um, further gas can, can escape. We, we have also the Amazon rainforest that is one of those uh, climate tipping points, but I'm not gonna go into that any, uh, anymore now. I think we, we got kind of the hang of it. Um, the last point that I wanna make is uh, with regard to the, to the term tipping point, because I think it can be misleading. It conveys the idea that we are able to accurately calculate this point prior to crossing it. But I think it makes more sense to understand it as a tipping dynamic. Um, this is, in my understanding, a lot more helpful. So it's not so much like a, a seesaw that at some point we, we have this point and then it chips and we, we know exactly where this point is. But I think the, the metaphor of a cr uh, climbing up a roller coaster, being in the last cart and not knowing how much of the roller coaster has already passed the highest point, then pulling us down, that makes more sense. So these climate, um, these cl uh, tipping dynamics are very dangerous. We don't know exactly where they are. We don't know how far we are into them. And it's just it highlights the, the urgency and the importance of cutting greenhouse gas emissions now and like actually doing something about the climate crisis. Yeah, so you're talking about that tipping point and it's really scary because it's not just as you explained, um, you know, the earth getting warmer. There's a lot more involved um, in, uh, you know, this whole crisis that we have in climate change. But we're really seeing over the past few years, um, these severe weather conditions are increasing. In the United States, um, recently we saw in Texas, first of all, it was crazy. They had this crazy snowstorm, which usually does not happen um, in Texas. It's in the southern part of the United States. Um, and normally they have pretty mild winters, but they had this crazy snowstorm um, and, you know, they lost power for days and many people actually died because the infrastructure in Texas just couldn't handle this. And while working people and poor people were without heat and without electricity, you could see pictures of downtown, um, you know, downtown in the big cities where these tall high rise buildings have, you know, lights in every, on every single floor, 30, 40 stories up. And it just, it shows the ridiculousness of how when we're in a crisis, um, how resources are allocated. Um, and, you know, a few years back, we saw in the Caribbean and Puerto Rico, we had Hurricane Maria, which was absolutely devastating for the island. And some people were without power for years. Um, and it's just, you know, we're seeing crisis on top of crisis. And we know that we live on a planet that has these, you know, weather um, storms and things that happen. It's, it's natural. Um, but can you talk a little bit about why capitalism, our economic system itself, is incapable of handling these crises? Um, yeah, so in general, natural disasters are inevitable on some level. They have always been earthquakes, hurricanes and forest fires. But leaving it at that would uh, paint a distorted picture. The escalating climate crisis has increased in frequency and intensity the natural disasters and it continues to do so. So we have, for example, melting glaciers that destabilize mountains and increase the likelihood of mudslides. Rising temperatures and droughts increase the risk of forest fires. 
warmer oceans mean more and stronger tropical storms like hurricanes and typhoons. And as the climate crisis is fundamentally driven by the capitalist system, the increasing intensity and frequency of these natural disasters is as well. It's interlinked. Another example that was mentioned already by Jara before is the pandemic. The profit-driven deforestation and destruction of natural habitats increases the likelihoods of such pandemics also in the future. So we have a capitalist system that is fundamentally causing the increase of frequency and intensity of these natural disasters. That's the one side. And the other side, that it's also, as you said, incapable of dealing with the aftermath and how to prevent it, how to mitigate the uh, effects. The neo-colonial countries, for example, they are disproportionately affected. Not only do hurricanes and typhoons typically happen around the equator and not around capitalist core countries, but then also when they do, they are horribly neglected, as you said, for example, with Hurricane Maria. And the reason for this is that, first of all, like building infrastructure to prevent the horrible effects or to mitigate them is cost-intense, but not profitable. Rebuilding things afterwards is also not the most profitable thing. And these neo-colonial countries often don't have the financial means um, to do so by themselves. They're also in a big public debt and need to prioritize other, other parts of their economy and society. Um, the short answer is private money will not go into this direction because it is not profitable. We can make the point, I think, quite, quite well with privatized infra infrastructure, which tends to take higher risks. Um, so there's a higher risk in malfunctioning in privatized infrastructure, such as energy corporations. Um, essentially, this sacrifices people's security over um, sacrifices people's security for profits. We have the example in London with the Grenfell Tower a couple of years ago with a horrible fire there. We have California's PG&E Energy Company. Um, we probably all remember the horrible forest fires of 2018, which killed 84 people. Those were caused by faulty equipment of the energy company. And this is not the only case. This investor-owned company has a long track record, track record of sacrificing people's safety for private profit. Um, however, there is also a counter-movement by the working class. There is an initiative, particularly for PG&D. There is an initiative for democratic public ownership. It's called Let's Own PG&E. And they advocate for worker and community control under democratic public ownership. They argue that PG&E should function democratically for safe, clean and affordable energy and good union jobs. And the same goes for the example of Texas that, that you mentioned before. Um, at the core, in the capitalist system, the goal of production is not to satisfy, satisfy people's needs, but private profit. And as an answer to that, we need to take, which we will go more in detail later on, I guess, we need to take key sectors such as infrastructure, energy, mobility and transport, health and education into democratic public ownership. Because once this profit-driven uh, imperative, the, the profit imperative is, is removed, we can actually focus on producing for people's needs and uh, to mitigate climate crisis. I think this is really interesting and there's a lot of kind of talk about the 
big bad things are happening. And I think a lot of people, and especially working class people, are trying to find solutions to the problem. And I think a lot of people are claiming uh, that there's, there are solutions in consumerism. So if you, we can just stop climate change if we uh, start recycling more and uh, you know get better sourced clothes and cosmetics and just changing our habits, basically. And I think for many people, that it's 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 something that they can do to feel like they're helping, and I think I think this is really positive, and it comes from a genuine place as well, which I think is is very easy to dismiss, but I, I don't I don't think it's correct to dismiss it in any way. By the same time, we see those ideas pushed by the same corporations that are causing <laughs> these massive problems with the climate. And they're using it to sell their own products, which is absolutely ridiculous. And then we also see the same corporations, the same people who are lobbying and creating this crisis. We're seeing them blaming working class people for not recycling enough, for not using reusable cups and not when using too many straws. So I think at the same time as this is happening, which is obviously horrible, we are seeing some steps in the right direction. We're seeing... Uh, you know, Biden re-entering the Paris Agreement, which I think is a positive step. But are are these type of changes really enough to deal with the climate crisis or do we need to do more than that? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question because it touches where at the everyday experience of many working class people. And I would also agree completely with you. I would never dismiss their, their efforts. It's of course good if people can reduce their emissions through eating less meat, reducing flying and car usage, and maybe switching to more sustainable modes of um, um, consumption overall. However, um, like it does, it does show a general awareness of the people and their will to change something. However, there are several problems with a focus on lifestyle and consumption changes that you already partly addressed. Um, firstly, it's a drop in the ocean. We need way bigger changes. Um, then you have the issue that many supposedly green products are not actually better for the environment. For example, um, car carbon offsetting. It's mostly known from flying. Um, you can also buy it, in, buy it for, for some bus journeys and in Austria actually uh, for skiing resorts. Uh, the point is that you cause emissions, you pay a bit extra and then those emissions are offset by some environmental project in a different country by planting trees or saving emissions somewhere else. It sounds good and looks good at first sight, but it's often detrimental for indigenous and local communities in those countries who are also pushed away, often pushed away from their country or not allowed entrance to a forest to use it anymore because now it, it's supposed to grow trees for um, offsetting carbon. And this has, of course, a very new colonial character. Um, then you have the issue that not everybody can afford it. Uh, so you suddenly come into this, this point where people with more, a higher budget can buy a good conscience and um, you mentioned it already that this is pushed by companies. Um, and in fact, there was a study uh, called the Green Winners Study from a consulting agency. Um, and they found out that during the crisis of 2008, sustainable or supposedly sustainable companies performed 10 to 15% better 
than others, uh, conventional ones. So they have a, they try to get a competitive advantage through being green or supposedly green, green cells in this um, in in this way one can say. But it's an empty promise, and it presents uh, a kind of like empty promise comes from Friday. It I think this there's a nice connection. Um, we see that green capitalism tries to sell us back what is actually at the heart of the problem. Um, but not only that, not it also deflects criticism against capitalism's own destructive consequences and incorporates this criticism. So it appears to be part of the solution for the problems that it actually creates itself. I totally agree with you, Philip. These ridiculous ideas that, you know, they can put the burden on the consumer for us to have, you know, the time, the energy, the money and the ability um, to be able to save the climate through our purchases and, and through individual recycling. But to be honest, I think a lot of people are, are starting to realize that this isn't, you know, the individual's fault. This is the fault of the large corporations. This is a fault of the ruling class who refuses, refuses to um, put the environment and put the planet before profits. Um, and so I think a lot of people are coming to this conclusion. So, you know, as socialists, you know, we say that it's capitalism that's the problem and, and we need to fight capitalism. But in, in regards to the, the climate um, specifically and, and, and to climate change, what are socialists doing to fight back and what are some socialist demands um, in order to save the environment? Yeah, this is really interesting because, of course, there, we are criticizing the capitalist system as the root cause of climate crisis. But this is not all. We have concrete demands to put forward that would actually make a difference if implemented right now. So what we are fundamentally calling for as a first step is democratic public ownership of key sectors of our economy. That is the energy sector, the mobility and transportation sector, social and healthcare sector, as well as agriculture and pharmaceutical sectors. But this needs to be a part of a broader Green New Deal paid for by the rich. We need massive green jobs created and we need well-paid union jobs in sustainable sectors. We need a working time reduction at full pay and staff level, as well as large investments in sustainable energy, mobility and agriculture. We need to change what and we need to change how we produce. And that has to be decided democratically. For example, mobility. It doesn't only serve enough to like simply switch from electric or hybrid uh, to electric or hybrid cars. This fails to address the fundamental problem. Instead, we need to massively expand and build free public transportation, affordable and accessible to everybody. And we need to combine these demands for environmental and climate protection with social demands for wage increases and improvements in working conditions. And then there's the obvious question, how will we get there? The established parties and ruling classes are quite obviously not delivering what people need or what is necessary to address the climate crisis. Why? Because it goes against the interest of private profit. That means we need to get organized to win. We, that is the working class, that is women, black people and people of color, the youth, indigenous communities and other oppressed groups across the globe. Together, we need to build mass workers' parties and win back the trade unions to fight for these improvements and beyond. We need to join the various fights and we need to join forces. If we collectively strike, 
the economy comes to a standstill. This is massive power. So this is what we suggest to bring the climate movement forward. Um, to build an anti-capitalist climate movement with the unions, with other social movements together, then we can win. This has been such a good discussion. I'm really excited for the next point, Yara, because we're going to talk about the actual organizing that's been happening with the youth. I mean, do you remember the past few years, how big the, the, the student movement has been? Yeah, it was so amazing to see it happening. I remember I was visiting my family the last time I visited my family in September in 2019. And there was a massive protest in Tel Aviv. And it was so good to see so many people on the street. And you can see like school students and university students and just random working class people, even like coming out on the lunch break. And it's so amazing to see how much this has mobilized people to actual action. And I think it's also interesting to see they wasn't just mobilizing to go out on a protest, but actually like this anger at people. And I remember one of the, the main slogans I remember is that people are saying, like school students were saying, why do I need to study maths? It's actually not going to help me because I am not going to be able to live long enough to use it, which I think is really a strong sentiment coming from school children. Yeah, I mean, the last climate action that I went to, you know, pre-COVID shutdown, I did just what you said, actually. I went out on my lunch break. I brought my coworker. There was one happening right in government center in my town. And I was in shock about how young the people were. There were, you know, eight, nine, 10 year olds out talking about why we need to save the climate. And I think, you know, that is, that, that is what we're seeing now. It's, we don't have to convince young people that we need to, uh, you know, fight against climate change. Um, they're the ones that are out, um, you know, saying that this is what we need to do to save the planet that they want to live in. Um, and so, you know, now we're gonna be talking to two members of the International Socialist Alternative who are youth climate activists. Um, we have Haritha who is from the Socialist Party in um, Ireland, how's it going? And we also have Connor who is a member of Socialist Alternative in England, Wales and Scotland. Um, and so they're here today to talk about um, the actions that we saw on um, Friday, March 19th. Um, but before we go into that exciting stuff, um, first, Connor, I want to, you know, just ask you to talk a little bit about where this um, climate movement, you know, kind of came from this, this recent one that we're in, talking a little bit about the, the history of the movement. I think it's important to say that this movement didn't come out of nowhere. I think, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense, really, when you look at uh, this kind of increasingly clear threat of the climate crisis that people have been growing up surrounded by. And I'm sure people watching will remember the bombshell report by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on, uh, on Climate Change, the IPCC, which reported at the end of 2018 now that there were 12 years left to radically change the way society works in order to halt the climate catastrophe. And that report called for urgent and unprecedented change. Of course, that 12 years has since become 11, 10, now we're approaching nine. Um, and we've seen essentially no serious action uh, to, to meet the kind of change that's needed. And I think that that's had a big impact on, on the mindset of young people uh, fighting for the climate. But also, I think it's part of a broader growing consciousness among young people that this system isn't working just 
generally. Uh, many of us in the climate movement uh, for our whole lives, all we've known is, you know, uh, a system of crisis, of austerity, instability. Uh, so I think it's no wonder that the dots are being connected, that people knew that this isn't just about individual changes in the current system. Uh, no, clearly the whole system needs to go. Of course, at the start of the movement, it wasn't necessarily as clear cut. There were influences from the previous environmental movements. There were more calls to recycle or to cycle more um, as if that would solve the crisis. But those voices have quickly been drowned out. Every new climate strike you go on, you'd see that these ideas were less and less present. In fact, we saw the opposite. There's this continued linking of the struggles together. And you could see how climate, class and capitalism were linked, but also racism, women's oppression and so on. And the call became one for climate justice, which I think is very positive. Uh, and there's also like progress in, uh, in the methods, taking up this idea of the strike. That's an essential part of the climate strikes, obviously. And we've seen that in other movements as well, like women's strikes in recent years. And, and it points, I think, to an understanding of the need to act collectively on a mass scale to win change, not just acting individually uh, among, among these kind of layers. And I think that's incredibly important and something we haven't seen previously. Maybe in previous years, the word strike didn't really strike as much, uh, uh, you know, in, like kind of response especially from young people. And I think in recent years, we've really, like you said, seen so many young people saying, hold on, if we want things to change, not only do we need to organize collectively, but we also need to do it in a way that will hurt actual profits. Because I think young people are making the connection that the system is a problem. And the system is a problem because it's built on the need for this ridiculous accumulation of wealth. And that is what you do with profit. And if th this is the main motive rather than the health and prosperity of people. And I wanted to ask Aretha because I know that you were a school student while the kind of peak of these strikes happened. Um, and you were playing an active role in this movement as well, uh, which I think is really interesting. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about, first of all, what it was like in school and what you heard from other students in your school also why you think that the climate crisis is such a glaring problem for young people in particular? Yeah I would have been um, amongst thousands of school students internationally um, who would have organized climate crisis climate crisis walkouts in our schools really concretely um, through leafleting and active interventions during lunchtime annoying the principal as always I would have actually gotten the majority of my school population to walk out of school um, multiple times um, in 2019. And in Dublin alone, we would have seen like multiple days of strike um, of tens of thousands of young people, which was not only significant in their vibrancy and um, their confidence in putting out radical demands um, and calling for systemic change to the system um, on the issue of climate but also it would have been especially significant because it would have been one of the first mass organizations of school students in Ireland for decades so I think we could to be honest sit here um, for hours and reel off statistics on the realities of the climate crisis and how radicalizing these would have been to young people but I don't really think any statistic 
um, can fully encompass um, the seriousness of the situation we're, we're facing, of course. And I think that young people really recognize that we're, of course, going to be the ones who are going to be most affected um, by the climate crisis right now. We know that unless we see a radical transformation of society, um, such as what Philip would have outlined, and of course, this is not, we're not talking about um, a few uh, bureaucrat politicians sitting around a boardroom and discussing the various ways in which they can implement reforms to appease us protesters. Um, unless we see a true change in society, um, we young people know that in our lifetimes, we will uh, be witnessing mass extinction of animal species. We know that we might see Antarctica be ice free in the summertime. We know that we will see drought and monsoons, which already are ravaging communities um, due to lack of funding to protect them. We know that these will not only increase in number, but also severity. So that when we see a situation like this and we're faced with such a stark crisis, I think um, in actually the words of Greta Thunberg a few years ago in, um, in our realization um, that in the face of such a stark crisis that um, governments and world leaders and, cap and the capitalist class are being so nonchalant about destroying the planet actually rings really true. And I think it really sums up the mood and fury of young people on the issue of climate, because I think it's so, um, it's, uh, it, it's not only that the capitalist class are nonchalant, about destroying the planet, but it's also that they thrive off of this exploitation. Like companies like Royal Dutch Shell, who are one of the, of course, they're one of the biggest um, emitters today. They turn over hundreds of billions of dollars a year in profit, and they um, will always put the short-term profit before the planet. Um, and in fact, these oil and gas corporations were amongst the first to realize that they were, you know, spurring on the climate crisis in the 1970s. Yet they, you know, hid this fact consciously from people. But it's the fact that young people today have absolutely no sympathy for these big oil and gas corporations or corporations genuinely um, and, their, and their profiteering interests. Um, there is a growing understanding that a system that prioritizes profits in the hand of a very small minority um, will not only be responsible for the exploitation of the planet, but for exploitation of people too. Um, and especially when we're looking at Jeff Bezos um, becoming the first, you know, trillionaire in, in the planet in the next five years. Um, young people, whilst young people have known nothing but crisis, we've not only grown up during the recession, but inequalities have been deepened even further by the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think it's really interesting that the mass, um, you know, um, climate strikes, you know, actually took place before um, the pandemic because if young people were skeptical about the inability of governments to come together and solve the climate crisis, then after looking at how, you know, um, the governments internationally have dealt with the pandemic, I think there are absolutely no illusions um, on the issue. And I think, of course, it's also important to remember that radicalization on one issue doesn't take place um, in a vacuum. I think 2020 really showed um, the fighting will of young people and also how we have absolutely zero tolerance for any kind of um, oppression or at least generally speaking, of course, whether this be racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia. And I think historically young people have always been um, the ones to pave the way for change because we haven't, you know, been uh, faced with the drudgery of living under living under capitalism for decades. Um, so we'll always be the ones to put forward the freshest ideas, but also have the enthusiasm and eagerness in our confidence um, to achieve mass change. I think this fighting will has only been extended over the pandemic. So I'll be really interested um, and excited to see 
um, how the climate strike, how the next wave of climate strikes um, appear over the next few months. It's so inspiring to hear you talk about this, Aretha, because I think that seeing those protests in action and then hearing about what's actually happened and what people, like young people, are talking about, and these realizations that you're talking about, so so amazing. And also the points that you just made about kind of how young people are the ones who are going to bring those fresh ideas and actually mobilize to move to the, the movement. I think we've seen it. We've seen it happen before the pandemic, like you said. And I, I completely agree that the pandemic is only going to increase that kind of energy that young people have and possibly even add more layers of uh, young school students who were too young in 2019. Now, after I think the pandemic has radicalized so many people on so many levels, but that climate is so connected to it that you can't really you know escape it at all um and you mentioned a little bit about Greta Thunberg and I think you know the 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 kind of her as a notable figure is really important because I think she brought to kind of kind of brought home the point that the climate crisis is an international crisis it's a systemic crisis and that is why the solution is to organize on an international level and I think that has inspired so many young people around the world. And I think more recently, we've seen other figures like Adisha Ravi uh, making the headlines, obviously connecting um, the farmers protest in India to uh, a solidarity appeal from Greta Thunberg. So I was, I, I was wondering if, if you can tell us a little bit about why you think it's important that the fight against the climate is international. I think, to be honest, it's so obvious um, for to young people to organize on an international basis, because, of course, the climate crisis is a world issue. It doesn't have any borders. Um, but in the same way that like oppression doesn't have borders generally. Right. Um, and I think the international climate strikes really help drill that in because there is no way that you can try solve the climate crisis in one country, even if one country or one government somehow um, magically decides to take super radical measures um, to protect the climate. That is not going to solve the climate crisis because there is no point in having one um, super green country um, in, in a planet that's like burning um, with exploitation. And I think. Um, the fact that I think the climate strikes is would have, would have really been a contributing fact um, to you know organizing internationally on further issues too. I think from Black Lives Matter, it was really clear last year um, that these that these protests were not only so significant in their like um, huge multiracial character and the huge solidarity shown by people of all races and all ethnicities to the issue of oppression, but also because of the fact that it was organized on an international basis, because you had protests in countries all over the world, not only showing solidarity with um, against the murder of George Floyd and protesters in the US, but also calling out the racism that exists in their own countries too. So I think um, protests uh, like protests everywhere, um, yeah, sorry, fighting against inequality in one country is the fight against inequality everywhere, of course. And I think because of social media, this has really um, you know, helped um, this international consciousness of young people, but I think even more so has been the global stronghold of capitalism today, right? And like the huge um, pervasion of like multinational corporations, it's far easier for young people to draw the conclusions that we need to fight against these huge corporations on an international um, 
basis. And um, I'm, people might have seen Patsy Stevenson, who was a woman arrested um, for standing at a peaceful protest um, on uh, the murder of Sarah Everend and against gender violence a few days ago, even herself, she would have been arrested and manhandled at, at an issue, uh, sorry, at a protest against um, gender violence. Um, and she, in the face of this brutal police uh, repression, would have ruthlessly called for an international movement to stand up to gender violence. And she pointed to Black Lives Matter and she pointed to anything that matters and um, the necessity for international struggle on all issues of oppression. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I think there's a point to be made about the fact that, you know, that capitalism is an international system. And as socialists, that's not necessarily a new idea that, that such a system needs an international challenge. It's how, uh, how we've organised uh, internationally for a, for a long time now. But I think the climate crisis really does throw it into way sharper relief because it's a crisis with worldwide repercussions. It's a crisis of the planet itself, isn't it? Uh, but also because it's a crisis that is being caused on a world scale. It's not one country responsible for climate change, but it's the whole of, uh, you know, of industrial capitalism from the, uh, from the US to China, through Europe and so on. Uh, and without addressing the crisis in all of these countries on a world scale, we can't hope to uh, seriously address the climate crisis. And capitalism itself has shown actually that it's totally incapable of, of, of taking that kind of international action. It's a system governed by international chaos with companies kind of competing against each other. And the disaster of the last international climate conference at COP25 in Barcelona at the end of 2019, I think really goes to show that it was totally defined by a kind of jostling between different capitalist governments looking to come out on top. And, uh, you know, they came out of that with the main conclusion that uh, simply more work needs to be done and that they discuss things uh, at a future conference that's coming up, uh, of course, later this year and I'm sure we'll talk about this but you know that that's that's two years that have just been wasted in a sense um because because capitalism's paralyzed in the face of a crisis like this and I do think the comparison to uh you know to to the inability to cope with a crisis like covid you know it shows that that's that's uh inbuilt feature of capitalism and something that if we want to really enact that kind of international change that we need, uh, we need to change the system. Um, and, and, and I think that, that that's something that's very obvious to people at the moment. Connor, I totally agree with you when you said, you know, capitalism is completely paralyzed by this crisis. And young people obviously know this, as we've been discussing. And I love the hashtag that has come out of this, no more broken promises. It's absolutely ridiculous that we're still decades after decades hearing the same thing from these politicians, from these corporations, that they're going to change, they're going to help the environment and giving us these little crumbs to deal with. And it's like that with everything. It's like that with wages. It's like that with our healthcare, And it's like that with our environment. Um, so Haritha, you know, since you've been a, a youth climate activist, I'd love to get a little insight into, you know, some of the strategies and tactics that young people are using today. 
I think the mass student strikes and like the sustained effort of, you know, the climate strikes we saw in 2019 was undoubtedly so inspiring and really forced masses of young people, but not only young people, so many people generally um, awake to the issue of the climate crisis. But as with any struggle, there are always many lessons to be learned um, from, you know, the previous strikes as well. And I think um, the past, although the past strikes included strong criticisms of, you know, the capitalist system and a system that prioritizes profit above the planet, we need to completely break away with any individualist demands um, and blaming of ordinary people um, for the climate crisis and really make it clear that we know the true cause of the climate crisis. We know that it isn't overconsumption that's in reality causing the climate crisis on the backs of ordinary people. We know that it's that overproduction um, is the real issue because there is not a lack of resources in society to provide, provide for anyone. It's only the way in which that they are hoarded by a very small minority that is the real issue and the true plague of society. And I think the recent study um, by Oxfam that found that um, the world's billionaires, we're talking about a handful of 2000 um, or so people own the same amount of wealth as 4.6 billion um, people in society. I think this is really the true inequality in society, right? Um, and I think future climate strikers need to have this understanding of the system at their core. Um, we need to be relentless in our demands as Philip outlined earlier, such as nationalizing key sectors of the economy, um, making public transport free for all and investing um, into green research. School students should have these demands in mind as we organize in our schools and in our communities through action groups and committees. Maybe this might mean that you're gonna face conflict with school authorities, but remember that we have power in numbers and when school students organize together, um, we can you know, defeat any um, criticisms or any um, you know, uh, issues that may um, come our way trying to like repress um, the climate strikes. And through organizing together in schools and workplaces as well, um, we can really expose to other people around us, not only the realities of the climate crisis, but we can also explain what steps are needed um, for all of us to take to actively fight against the climate crisis as well. We also shouldn't have any fear in reaching out to trade unions and workers generally. Um, we, we, I think the climate strikes really showed the power of school students and also the power of actually young people demonstrating our fighting will pose the real threat to the system, of course, because they have an insight into the kind of fighting generation that they're going to have to put up with in the future. Um, but we should also remember the roots of strike, act, strike action. This was something that was touched upon earlier, but we also have to remember, we have to keep in mind um, that strikes center around with workers withdrawing their labor, understanding that when workers start working, especially en masse, the world stops working. It brings society to a halt and forces our demands way, way louder. We need to remember that we have power in numbers and we should not be afraid of reaching out um, to all workers in society to join us in our struggle. Thanks, Haritha. That's so inspiring. You said when the, when workers stop working, the world stops working. I love that. I'm totally stealing it. It's it's a great explanation for actually what is needed. But Connor, you know, socialists are not the only ones that are, are, are trying to stop climate change. You know, there are um, environmentalist organizations and even, you know, our, um, you know, capitalist politicians talk about um, trying to save the environment. But as a socialist, what type of movement do you think that we need to build? Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think, firstly, an organized movement is essential. Um, and that would be, 
you know, uh, something like what Haritha was just talking about, uh, about the kind of organisations that you might want to see in the schools and this kind of thing. And I think that these would be a way to build um, a much more lively discussion about the strategy and tactics to debate the different ideas in the movement and to crucially discuss our programme, what demands we do need to raise and what kind of direction we want to uh, take this movement. And for us, you know, that, that would be a, a place where we can uh, make the arguments for these ideas, uh, the popular ideas of system change, not climate change, the kind of anti-capitalist uh, anti elements that are present in the movement at the moment, and linking that to this alternative that we're talking about of a socialist society, because under capitalism, it will always be the case that there's uh, no accountability, really, of these huge corporations that are responsible for climate change to the vast majority of ordinary working people and young people in society, the ones that are really affected by this crisis. And, you know, they'll, they'll fundamentally continue destroying the planet if it means turning a profit. So uh, I absolutely agree that, that uh, we'd want to talk about taking these corporations uh, into democratic public ownership and, and we'd want to lay the basis for a society based on democratic planning and international cooperation, which is a world apart from what we're seeing at the moment, isn't it? Uh, but I think the importance of a, of a socialist climate movement as well is that it would be one that would be able to build links with uh, other struggles too. And all other movements really fighting for change. Uh, we've seen similar international movements questioning the system, haven't we, uh, with things like BLM, as well as the struggles of workers all over the world against attacks on jobs, on pay, against corrupt and authoritarian governments and this kind of thing. And we'd want to uh, link the climate movement with these issues and, and uh, draw out this, this fundamental point that the system isn't working, that we do need to change it and fight for mass mobilizations of all of these groups in society. And I do actually think that mass mobilization is something that we have to start thinking about in the run up to COP26, this climate conference that I mentioned earlier, and it's taking place in Glasgow in November. And at the last conference, um, there were hundreds of thousands of people that turned out. Greta Thunberg uh, herself actually came. And I think we should be looking at protests of a similar size uh, of action this time around. Uh, but we, you know, this should be an organized demonstration. We, we would call for the trade unions to back such a demonstration. And we wanna send a clear message to the capitalist leaders at that conference, but also send a message uh, out to the masses of workers, of young people, of the oppressed internationally, that we're not gonna sit around waiting for them uh, because we have no faith in them to do what's needed. Uh, in, in the cap in the capitalists to do what's needed we need system change and we need to get organized to make that happen uh, so i know in isa we're going to be planning to go to glasgow and to boldly put forward the need for socialist change to fight climate change um and and i think that that's going to be really important this was really really interesting to hear from both of you and i think also from philip as well before and i think they connect so well because we keep talking about democratic ownership. We keep talking about the profit motives under this system and the climate really makes it so clear as to why it's not just 
the best way to organise society, but why it's necessary. So thank you so much Aretha and thank you so much Connor for being here and uh, this was really really good, really really interesting, thank you so much. So after this really incredible discussion, uh, we are coming to the end of the show, but before we go, we have the shout out of the week. And this week, Haritha talked about it a little bit, but I think it's really important that we kind of properly discuss this and properly give a shout out to everyone involved. And that is, of course, um, the murder of Sarah Everett and the huge... Uh, national but also international uh, movement that rose out of that. So to anyone who hasn't seen, Sarah Everard was abducted and murdered while walking home uh, from a friend's house at night in London. Now at night, it was 9.30pm. And outrageously, of course, the police's reaction was what the police always does with cases like that. And it was to tell women in the area to avoid going outside uh, while they were investigating the disappearance. It's absolutely disgusting. And I think I've just seen like a couple of weeks ago, this uh, documentary on Netflix about the Yorkshire Ripper and seeing that something that like the same kind of statements from the police from literally 40 or 50 years ago are still the same statements is just outrageous and it's everywhere this is what started the slut walk movement at the beginning of the last decade this is so so enraging um and i think this is clearly not just me who was enraged by that uh, women all around the world and particularly in london were really angry about the way that the police has handled this uh, because we're always constantly told to change our behavior to avoid harassment to avoid violence and we're not talking about the actual causes of this violence actual causes of this oppression it's just it's it's so sad when i i saw you know members from uh, around the world but especially in europe you know in ireland and england posting about this woman i had to i had to look it up and i was appalled um, you know, to see uh, what happened. And, you know, you're just seeing all these memes and all these posts about, you know, uh, dress a certain way, don't go out at night, take a cab, don't take a cab, you know, um, call your friends, do all of these things that like, when you see all the lists of things that women are told to do to stay safe and you realize, wow, I do do all those things. And you don't even think about it sometimes. You don't even think that like, um, it's insane that in society we have to do this. Sometimes it's just natural and it, and it shouldn't be. It, it should not be natural at all. It's absolutely disgusting. Um, but I was, I was happy to see the immediate action that was taking place by, um, you know, especially young women around the world, all the, all the protests that were happening. But then, of course, the police, Yara, what happened? The, the police repression that, that existed afterwards, Haritha mentioned it a little bit. Yeah, it was actually ridiculous. But before I go into that, I just wanted to say, because what you said is so true, like we're taking so many precautions, but Sarah Everett took these precautions too. She was on her phone while she was walking home and still she, she, everyone's saying that like, like, you know, we still have this perception that women should be taking precautions uh, rather than kind of fighting against the system and then when we do fight against the system we have this police repression which is even more disgusting when you consider the fact that first of all the man they arrested is a police officer not only is he a police officer 
he was also accused of flashing in public about like, a couple of days before this murder happened and nothing was done about it. So how can you say that we are the ones that need to take, uh, to take precautions if the police is proving once like again that they are not protecting anyone even when they are taking the precautions and i think it's a massive and tragic loss for sarah's family for her friends for the community in south london and i think generally in england generally in the uk generally around the world but then when protests were organized the 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 police threatened the organizers with thousands of thousands of pounds as in fines which is just absolutely disgusting now the the organizers actually managed to crowdfund these uh the, the 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 money but they were still threatened so much by the police that they unfortunately called back the um the protest but another organization stepped in and organized village vigil anyway and then you probably have seen these disgusting photos of the way that the police handled it like as if uh, p women were rioting on the streets and not protesting this actual significant pro problem and it's just it, it was it was so violent and the, the the protesters were peacefully protesting before that so i want to really really give a huge shout out to everyone who attended these protests and also the solidarity protests around the world and of course to all of the women who are now fighting against the sexist system wherever you are so just a massive shout out and i can see that both of us are really really angry about this and i think that combined with everything we talked about today with the climate with black lives matter with the movement against women's oppression this is going to be a year of fighting and we really need to take everything that we can to prepare ourselves for that and that being said i want to thank philip i want to thank haritha and connor uh, for being on tonight's episode and obviously thank everyone uh, for tuning in to this episode and if you like what you heard today if you agree that this is the time for us to take this movement one step forward please don't forget to uh, subscribe to our channel to click the bell button to be notified when we upload and of course join us because we really need to fight in an organized way against all of these issues that we really as was highlighted so well in this episode just don't have any time to lose before we fight against it. So thank you so much and see you next week, same time, same place. This Bye. is World to Win. Every Sunday we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight! When they fight! When they fight! Solidarity!